it's really more of a conspiracy theory than a tweet. Yeah. Than this I is Brian's like conspiracy corner. Yeah. So um, the conspiracy theory is this. Um, is it about the I, FBI killing JFK? No, but the FBI should be doing something about it. Not the like, not the people, not the FBI agents who like arrest people, and but the FBI agents who like protect America. Hey everyone, you're listening to a free preview of the Politics Podcast. Um, in this episode, Matt and I will discuss Ron DeSantis's campaign. Rest in peace. Why was it such a flop? Um, why didn't the GOP elite? and the center-right rally around him instead of flocking back to Donald Trump? Um, and is there a generally applicable lesson in his failure? Do candidates who pander to base activists tend to alienate themselves from base voters? Um, then we'll take paid subscribers on a trip down memory lane uh, to probe the question, is all this self-sabotaging pandering to policy activists Matt Iglesias' fault? Uh, so we hope you enjoy the conversation, and if you like what you're hearing and want to listen to the whole episode, you can upgrade to paid at politics, with an X, dot FM. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Podcast. I'm Brian Boitler. And I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, this week, we're recording this Tuesday morning, so we don't technically know who's going to win the New Hampshire primary, but um, but there are some strong clues that... Nikki Haley is not going to win. Have you have you picked up on those two? Matt? Uh, it seems like Donald Trump will win. So we are we are th that is our assumption is that Trump will win and this primary is going to wrap up real fast. Uh, if that doesn't happen, if if Haley surprises us, wins, and it seems like there's a real race, we will adjust our recording philosophy so that we're not doing this on Tuesdays and we can, we can do subsequent coverage. But I, I think our bet is good. Um, I believe in the polls. I, I believe <laughs> in the numbers. Um, people love Trump, at least Republican party primary voters love Trump. And it seems like that's where we are. You know, Hillary Clinton came back in a surprise victory to win New Hampshire in 2008. But I, th I think if memory serves, it was because there was a debate and Barack Obama was kind of mean to her and she, she like choked up a little bit and it flipped things. And maybe the reason Donald Trump is going to win is that he's just adamantly refused to appear with Nikki Haley at any kind of debate or forum to do anything. Um, um, but we were going to talk about the man who was <laughs> supposed to be Trump's main Rival for the domination. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, so we really want to to home in on the Ron DeSantis belly flop. Meatball he, he Ron. En Meatball Ron is gone. Um, he ended his campaign after losing pretty terribly in Iowa, which was the only state he'd invested resources in. Um, and everyone kind of knows why he lost, um, but I'm not sure there's a lot of consensus around what it tells us about American politics. Um, like some say that it's the death rattle of anti-woke politics, and some say that it's the death rattle of uh, short men, at least in Republican yes. politics. <laughs> but I think we want to explore a somewhat different idea. Um, and so, Matt, what is that idea? Well, so I, I, I want to like level set a little bit here because DeSantis had been clearly losing for so long before he dropped out that it can feel unremarkable and like overdetermined, right? I mean, like, what, you know, why did he lose? Like, well, he, he just, he wasn't close. And, you know, why did Tim Scott lose? Like, who cares? The thing, <laughs> the thing about DeSantis, if you look at national Republican Party primary polling, like a year ago, he was competitive. You know, like, before his super PAC started airing ads, before any of this happened, 
he wasn't beating Trump, but he was making a real run of it. And I think it seemed credible to people. Donors were putting money into his campaign. He was going to run ads. He was going to have an operation in Iowa. And he was the answer to this idea that had been percolating ever since Trump won in 2016, right? What would Trump, people thought Trump was going to lose to Hillary. But then when he beat her, the idea started really cycling around of like, what if we could improve on Trumpism, right? Rather than, rather than beating Trump or stopping Trump, what if we could perfect Trump and, and create something that was like Trump, but more like Trump, but competent was a catchphrase that often came around. Um, and there was an ambiguity, I think, to that phrase. Like, like what did that mean? Competent at what, right? And, and there's one vision that Ron DeSantis did not offer. But that was, like, imagine a version of Trump who had just stiff-armed Paul Ryan and said, no, we're not going to try to repeal the Affordable Care Act. We're not going to lead with a big corporate tax cut. We're going to focus in on, like, border security, trade policy, and we're going to do a bipartisan deal on infrastructure or something, right? That's like, take Trump's ideological notions and try to make them real instead of just bullshit. That's not what Ron DeSantis was. That's not what he did. That's not what he meant by Trumpism, but more competent, right? DeSantis's idea that I think he never totally articulated in a sufficiently um, robust way was like Trump, but just more serious and hardworking. Like all of Trump's hard right instincts plus Trump's culture war instincts, plus Trump's relentless lib-owning, but like from a nerdy grind, you know, who wasn't out there cracking jokes or getting burgers with college football athletes or having aides constantly worried that he might cut a deal with Chuck Schumer behind their back, right? Like what if a hard right ideologue just like took the Trump policy blueprint and tried to be more serious and more diligent about it. And to a lot of people, like Republican, it's not a coincidence that like he got a lot of money early in the campaign or that a lot of staffers signed up for him because that's what, you know, conservatives, serious people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016, elites, but who didn't favor Trump as the nominee, like, that's what they wanted. They wanted to set aside this, like, reality TV charlatan and say, look, like, this this worked as a shtick. And now let's, like, put somebody in there who's just, like, going to go full throttle, right? Let's so, not just talk about the trains running on time. Let's actually make them run on time. Well, and, and who took seriously, you know, a, a point that, like, John Chait makes in, in a lot of his essays is that, um, like, like wokeness for, and I think any possible definition of it, uh, like got worse while Donald Trump was president, not better. Like that's when all the like awakening kind of happened, right? And so one philosophy of that, like the, the, the Chait view is that just goes to show like we should elect moderate Democrats, not psychotic Republicans. But the DeSantis view was like, no, Right. What we need to do is put somebody in who not only is going to like go on television and be like immigrants are rapists. We need someone who has an anti-woke policy agenda 
right? And so he had the coveted Christopher Rufo endorsement and had like a like a policy blueprint that was going to somehow like force Americans to stop having woke ideas. And DeSantis is like that sort of down the board, right? He was essentially the Elizabeth Warren of republicanism, you know, the the and not to equate it too much, like his level of actual policy idea detail was low compared to any democrat but for a republican he was like really out there with a lot of a lot of a lot of stuff right so like he he has this he has a policy section on his website which a lot of republicans don't do these days um he has like takes on which specific ethanol blends the EPA should be encouraging people to use he has this thing about like immigration judges need to have summary authority, whatever it is, right? Like he's not just like build the wall and make Mexico pay. Um, He wants to um, delist and de-index Chinese companies supporting the PLA. He wants to ring fence U.S. investment flows. He he has just like a lot of of stuff going on instead of just like, I'm going to be tough. Um, And nobody cares. (laughs) <laughs> well, okay. So the way I think about this is very similar, but um, I think that like the dynamic runs the other way. Like it's not that it's like this was this was the only thing available to a kind of candidate who is like Ron DeSantis. And there are kinds of candidates like this in both parties. And I'm going to try to explain what I mean by that. But like I come at the question of the DeSantis flop like this. Like how would Ron DeSantis have performed? in a world where Republicans had disqualified Donald Trump from running after January 6th. Um, uh, Like when they bypassed that final off ramp, they made the situation that we're in almost inevitable. Um, Like, Oh, if like Trump actually maybe did get the election stolen from him, then he should be the nominee again. And if he's going to be a a strong candidate for president, we don't need somebody who is like his mini me to, to run in his place. Um, if he'd been charged and convicted of a crime in 2022 and 2023, that might have taken him off the board in a similar way and shaken up the race in a way that allowed somebody like DeSantis to sneak through. But beyond that, right, the only hope for any Republican, including him, would be like somebody with some level of charisma and enough confrontationalism to like just tell voters he lost that election. And that's why that's why. You should want the mini me, right? Like he has already proven that Joe Biden can beat him, but I can beat Joe Biden. That basically didn't happen. Um, And because he lacks like charisma and fortitude um, and also like Republicans decided we're just going to roll the dice with Trump again. He had he had like none of the advantages he needed to make it work. He needed to adopt the positions of the, of like the policy demanders in his party almost as like a crutch. Um, and it's, this is the thing that I think bedevils candidates in both parties is when they don't have like a real core, um, to like, like, why are they in politics? What do they want to do with power when they earn it? Like what's driving this beyond pure ambition, uh, and competitiveness. Uh, it's like, they end up in this uncanny situation where they're just reciting the things that they think the policy demanders 
who supposedly represent base voters want them to say. And I think that voters can smell that, right? Like, and, and it, it's sort of my grand theory of why the Kamala Harris primary campaign got nowhere in 2020. Um, and the weird thing about like Elizabeth Warren is who like the, 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 the person you compared DeSantis to, and I understand why he did, um, is that she has a very clear driving purpose in all of this. Um, but when she decided to run for president, I think instead of applying the principles that, that kind of drive her views on political economy and like consumer welfare policy and applying those to other areas, she kind of like bifurcated her appeal where there was like the, the Elizabeth Warren we know is the person who like, I fight for the little guy against the big banks on the one hand, but then in areas where like, she didn't have that kind of facility and expertise. She would just recite the laundry list of policy demands from the advocacy class um, and complete with all the jargon that they use. And that sounds very alien and voters can kind of smell the lack of authenticity on it. But like, I, so, I mean, I, I agree with that on some level, but I mean, what, what, what I think is the commonality between them is that they both very actively courted the sort of like think tank class you know what I mean? Like it wasn't just the, like imitating their, their their policy stances, but it was the theory that like this was a good way to connect to people. Because you're right. I mean, obviously, like DeSantis just just ducked a certain kind of confrontationalism with with Trump, but he succeeded in like step one of his plan, right? Which was to like reach around Trump and get a lot of people to agree that he was like smarter than Trump, you know, and like understood their white papers better than Trump did and that they would prefer him to Trump. It just, that doesn't get you anywhere, right? And it's similar. It reminds me in some ways of like Warren relative to Bernie in the Democratic ecosystem, right? Where there was an idea, like when Bernie ran in 2016, it bothered a lot of people who I know personally that a lot of the things Bernie said like didn't make sense or weren't true. And there were always these polls and they'd be like, Bernie would just like crush Hillary on honesty metrics. And people from Hillary's campaign would like come to me and they'd be like, Matt, like, this is so terrible. Like people think he's so much more honest than our guy uh, or woman, um, but he's saying things that aren't true all the time. And I was like, closer to what you were saying, like the thing about Bernie is that he was um, emotionally authentic. You know, which I think is what what people mean by honesty. Mm-hmm. That like Bernie Sanders sincerely does not like rich people, and particularly rich business people. He doesn't um, appreciate them on any level. He doesn't believe that like free markets and innovation are important. He thinks they're bad people, and he just says that. You know, and and like that's what he means. Um, Warren was supposed to like synthesize these competing elements in the Democratic Party by providing like like this like wonkier, more like cleaned up version of Bernieism. Right? Sure, Where she was yeah. gonna like, she was gonna like get these, you know, because she had her particular area of expertise in financial regulation, but she also had this network of like smart law professors all across America who were going to write up like really like clever versions of all these kind of ideas. But it turned out that like people didn't like that more, like quote unquote improving um, Bernie's brand of left-wing politics 
made it less appealing. And and I think that's the same for, for DeSantis and Trump. Like Trump would, Trump would just kind of be like, the border seems out of control. And like a lot of people agree with that. And you know, other people disagree, but, but, and then Trump would convey that like, not only does he think the border is out of control, but he thinks it is fine to be inhumane if that's what it takes to get the border under control. And then he wasn't just like that in the weeds about what that meant. So if you, you know, are a Mexican-American living in South Texas who has a cousin who like crosses the border for work, but also has a different cousin who works in the border patrol, and you actually feel quite conflicted and cross-pressured about this, like Trump is just like, secure the border. And if you agree with him about other stuff because you're, you know, an observant Catholic or, or whatever, you, you can just vote for him. Whereas like DeSantis is up there saying, you know, I will seek changes to give immigration judges summary disposition authority and require DOJ to greatly narrow conditions for continuance, motions, and administrative appeals. Well, but like maybe if you're actually involved in this, like you actually remember a time when an immigration judge giving someone a continuance like helped with a real, you know, it just like it makes it more alienating the more you kind of like turn the screws on exactly how this is going to work because actual life is like more complicated than than like emotionally you know demagoguery than like the than the, the demagogic version of any political appeal is right I mean, and, like, and it just, just like just like the healthcare system seems fucked up and i'm like yeah. yes it does seem fucked up and then it's like the more you try to describe like exactly how you're going to fix it the more it's like Ugh. yeah the i mean i remember the the way the other thing elizabeth warren i think was trying to do was you know I'm as progressive as Bernie, but Bernie has this baggage because he's called himself a a socialist for 50, 40 years or whatever. And uh, I call myself a capitalist. Like I, I'm like a capitalist in my bones, but, and we need the regulation to keep them honest and to make sure that the little guy doesn't get hurt. And I, I don't think that it like resonated well, and then when she just bodied Michael Bloomberg out of the race altogether, that reached people. Like people in the in the party's base, like remembered for a moment. That's like the Elizabeth Warren that I wanted to be running for president the whole time. And by but by that point, it was too late. the The thing about it, though, is like if you imagine a world where Elizabeth Warren had won the won the primary and then became president, like. She was like very able bureaucrat. Like she's very savvy about, about like working within bureaucracies and she has this network of people and she had all these plans. And like, I think it stands to reason that she would have made a lot of headway um, on a lot of the things that mattered to her and mattered to the, like the progressive wing of the party um, and been a little bit more, envelope pushing about doing that than Joe Biden has been. And I, I, I like, I take your point very well. I actually like uh, completely agree with it that, that saying, for instance, like I will keep the air clean and the water clean is a safer way to run a campaign than talking about how much you're going to charge 
per pound or ton of carbon dioxide and how, and then people can calculate how much that's going to make people's energy bills go up. Right. And then suddenly we're in the realm of people like backing off, like maybe I don't care how clear the air is after all. Um, but if you, if it somewhere between over, over itemizing your agenda and doing pure demagoguery, there has to be a sweet spot because like Donald Trump won in 2016 with the, just like, I'm going to like make a wall and Mexico is going to pay for it. And I'm going to repeal Obamacare and, and I'm going to do an infrastructure bill. Right. And like none of it happened. Um, and I think part of the reason is because there was no, the party wasn't prepared because it, it, it was just vaporware. Yeah. Um, but we're, we're, we're like, we're like Donald, like, like Ron DeSantis will say, here's my 10 point plan for eradicating the woke mind virus. And it involves, doing this to corporations with this legal authority and whatever else. And suddenly it loses a lot of its authentic appeal. But on the flip side of that, like he would have been able to deliver something. And like, I'm not sure it's clear where the, where the optimum is, right? Like if you're a candidate, you don't want to under prepare. You don't want to under itemize, but you also don't want to like, be so detailed that you get yourself tied up in knots with follow-up questions about what people's energy bills are going to be. But here's here, here's what Trump and DeSantis had in common, though, that distinguishes them from all Democrats, is that you look throughout this DeSantis website, or, or Trump's, or anyone's. I did not do this, but okay. I have no idea what he was going to do. There is nothing, nothing on the website about how Ron DeSantis will allow industrial corporations to put more pollution into people's drinking water. You know, like he doesn't say he'll do that. Trump doesn't say he'll do it. Trump during the 2016 campaign never said he would do that. But it occurred when Donald Trump was president. You know, like that is the thing. I mean, he did many things, but like with regard to clean water rules, he made the rules weaker. And I have absolute confidence that as president, if he's put back in, Trump will weaken clean water rules. Ron DeSantis would weaken clean water rules. Nikki Haley would weaken clean water rules. Tim Scott would weaken clean water rules. And that's because, I mean, I don't know. I haven't had private conversations with any of these people, but I believe that any Republican Party president will appoint Republicans <laughs> to positions of authority at the regulatory agencies, and they will implement more or less what Republicans think, and that is make the clean water rules weaker. And none of them need to say that. And critically, whoever it is out there who like really wants weaker clean drinking water rules is not encouraging people to say it. And they are not trying to say, we want to back the nominee who will most explicitly agree to advance our agenda. You know, they just trust that like Republicans are going to Republican. And something, you know, Democrats have been really hoping that they could get Republicans going to like outdo each other in talking about how many abortions they're going to ban. And they haven't done it. And the pro-life movement- The states it, are doing it for them. I mean, like- Yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, I'm not saying it's like the yeah. whole problem is solved, but right, but right. like- the DNC's dream would be a version of the, would be, you know, back when they had that big field with no Trump in it, right? But like each of them are up there and it's like, hands up, who wants an eight week ban? And all the hands go up. And then it's like, hands up, who wants a six week ban? And like all the hands go up except one. 
And then everybody hates on the person who wouldn't endorse the six-week ban. And then, you know, like the way libs do things is that after Trump didn't show up at a debate where everyone committed to a six-week federal abortion ban, right-wing protesters would be at every single one of his rallies being like, Trump, where's your six-week ban? Social media would be full. Any positive post about Trump would be right-wing people dunking on him for refusing (laughs) to commit to the six-week ban. And they just like, they don't do that, right? Like nobody, not me, not you, not the Susan B. Anthony list, no one is sure exactly how far Trump will go in banning abortions. There's just a general confidence that he will go pretty far. He will go as I far mean, he as did, he can. He does, say there'd be, be, the, he does like say, I, I terminated Roe v. Wade. It, there'd be no six weeks without me. Right, like, right, he's right, doing but, the work for them. And right. Stuff. I mean, he's doing some, but he's not doing the equivalent of like, I, I, I was really struck in 2020, right? Like Beto O'Rourke came swinging out of the gate with a $3 trillion climate plan. And then he got criticized by a bunch of climate activists because he didn't commit to like net zero by 2045 or something. And then like more and more ambitious plans came out and everybody knew that whole time that like, like people know how Congress works. Like this is not a case of like Matt's so smart and the activists are dumb and don't know that Joe Manchin's opinion matters. It's that they didn't care that Joe Manchin's opinion matters, right? What they wanted was the candidate who was willing to like take the most aggressive stance because that was a sign of how much you care. And Republicans, it seems to me, like actually don't think that way. And that's important. It's an important part of their electoral dynamic. Not that they're like flawless or Trump is a god of message discipline or or something like that, but like he... He tries, they try to avoid committing themselves to specifics that are particularly to specifics that they can't do, right? Like, like you actually can't sign a federal abortion ban into law. So they're all very like hazy and cagey about it. And then Democrats like try to edit the clips together. And like the, the left refuses to just like, cut people some slack okay, and accept but, that a Democrat's a Democrat. But okay, I, I feel like you're maybe a, a little bit of two minds about this because on the one hand, I hear you saying it's like counterproductive to actual progress making for the activists who care about climate change to be haranguing decision makers about their, their climate policies or how they're going to vote in the Senate. At the same time, like I also think you believe that there's an advantage when the Sunrise Movement camps outside of Nancy Pelosi's office back when she's speaker and does a sit-in, and Nancy Pelosi gets to call it call it the Green Dream or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like be dismissive to the left flank of the party that you and I think a lot of people who inhabit the center think is smart politics. And would you, I mean, which, which dynamic would you rather have? Cause you have to choose. No, would I mean, rather- I, I think the <laughs> smartest politics is when people just shut, like people ask me like, what would you like climate activists to do instead? I would like them to do literally nothing to, <laughs> I, I, I think that we would make more progress on climate change. If the budget of every climate group in America was cut by 50%, if the budget for quote unquote activism on that topic was like 
zeroed out. Okay, they, but these were, ha- you know, like, what would happen? What would happen to the quality of democratic policymaking when they took power? Like, what would be lost? Anything? I, I don't really think so. Like, what happens is, I, I think that there is a irrational obsession with betrayal right like taking place inside the democratic party and the idea is well if we can get people to publicly commit then they won't be able to sell us out and so we should be willing to accept all kinds of problems and all kinds of infighting for the sake of avoiding these sellouts and I think there's like a double fallacy to that. One is that like sellouts just don't happen that much in politics. Uh, the thing that's more common than the sellout scenario is what Obama did with marriage equality, right? Which was like, he ran in 2008 being like, gay marriage, no way, right? That goes against my religion. Marriage is between a man and a woman. And he flip-flopped on that eventually when it became popular. But importantly, he appointed the Supreme Court justices who did the Obergefell ruling before his flip-flop. And anyone who I think took the question seriously could have predicted that Barack Obama was going to appoint federal judges who were going to be sympathetic to LGBT rights plaintiffs, like before he did his public position taking. Because like that was already the opinion of progressive elites, right? Like Democrats care a lot about climate change. The elite Democrats who staff Congress, the administration already care about it a lot. And you got to just kind of let them, let them trust them. But then the other thing, the flip side of this, right? Because I I think it's important in both ways. It's not that betrayals never happen, but the public commitments don't prevent them, right? So like one thing the climate activists extracted from Biden was a very public, repeated commitment to block new oil and gas leasing on federal land, um, which was politically damaging and has like fed a lot of GOP hits against Biden. But he didn't do that. And like, in fact, oil and gas leasing is up. Oil and gas production are at record levels. And like Biden did that because the um, uh, the substance of the policy he'd committed to just like would have been really toxic and they lost court battles over it and stuff. So he just didn't do it. So you you do this thing that's like unnecessary. It's politically damaging. And then it also doesn't even have the upside that it's like su- supposed to have, you know, and it just become a kind of like, like a cargo cult uh, so, sort of action. And DeSantis, I think, like would have gotten more lift if conservatives had that same mentality because he was much better situated to like check the laundry lists and like amp people up like that. But it's like no one... You know, on on the right, they're just, I don't want to say they're more chill because they're like very amped up about destroying the left. But like, that's the thing that they're amped up about, destroying the left, not about, um, you know, NGO funding or the uh, DeSantis will establish priorities under the Development Finance Corporation to seek areas of opportunity with returned workforces in Central and South America for supply chain nearshoring. Like, where's where's Trump on supply chain nearshoring and the development finance? Like, I don't even know what that is. And I, not to, you know, I, I, I fancy myself uh, something of a policy wonk, but like the federal government does tons of shit that I don't understand at all, much less like normal people. Uh, so why when... Um politicians especially like high level ones like 
people who are likely to become president meet with activists in their party base. Why do they say, why don't they say to them, chill, I got this. I can't talk (laughs) about it because if I do, I'm going to lose the election, but I'm, I'm going to I'm going to be there for you when it counts as long as you don't screw this up by by dividing the coalition or making me take an unpopular position. What they say instead is like, okay, like I appreciate you and you've got to make me do this. Like I've heard this. Yeah, personally. yeah, yeah. Well, I this I think is like is where like the X factor of uh, charisma comes in. You know what I mean? Like I do think that the good politicians, like like Obama was able to make everyone feel like he secretly agreed with them. I mean not like literally everybody, but I think he was he was good at that. Like I um on one occasion like remember coming out of a like off the record chat that Obama did with journalists uh, like disagreeing with a fellow journalist as to like what had Obama said in the Meeting, you know, I, I, I just, it's, you know, it's, you can't can't get into too much detail on this kind of thing, but like he was really good at like making everybody feel like, you know, he was like sending you like the secret brainwaves, and he would do it in his speeches too. Um, and I would see people argue about this stuff, like, is he just pandering, like in a good way, um, or does he really agree with me? And you know, most elected officials are like. They're more charismatic than the normal person you meet, and they're really good at remembering people's names, and they have a lot of energy for talking to strangers. You know, it's it's hard to do a politician's job, but they just and and people some you know start making fun of DeSantis for being too introverted for politics, but I'm sure he's like more extroverted than an average person. Uh, but it's it's hard, I think, to have the level of charm that is needed to address a nation of 330 million people and make 180 million of them feel like you really see eye to eye with them. Like that's the, that's the secret sauce of politics. I was in one of these off the records with Obama. I've been in a few of them, but like the last one I was in right before Trump took over, I can talk about it because I think it was it was like a couple years ago, and Jason Leopold, if I'm remembering right, FOIA'd a bunch of stuff. Oh yeah, from and and typically you can't FOIA the, the executive office of the president, but for whatever reason, the transcript to that roundtable with columnists got included in the in the FOIA return, and so it's just out there, including like his view that the country can't survive two Trump terms, which now I guess we might might be about to test. Um, okay. <laughs> But, as long uh, as they're non-consecutive, it's fine. Maybe. I don't know. Okay, but here's the real question, though. Um, isn't this whole dynamic, um, which I think uh, you, you've come to despise over the years, like, part of me thinks it's your fault. Um, and if you're listening, you've reached the end of the free portion of this podcast. Um, if you've enjoyed it thus far and want to hear more, uh, including all of our past episodes and, and episodes to come, um, and about how Matt ruined politics with his blog, uh, please visit politics.fm and subscribe. Thanks so much.